As Beth said, these two Sundays of Christmas tide, we've been in a little two-part series in 1 Corinthians 9, and Eugene Peterson's lovely paraphrase in the message, uh, noting especially these phrases, he entered our world, and we enter theirs. Last Sunday, we looked at the, the first couple of phrases and talked about Paul's consciousness of laying down his rights as an apostle. That's what undergirds the Corinthian correspondence. Very much of the Corinthian letters are all about Paul defending his apostleship, but then laying it down, and in this particular passage, saying that he's laying down his rights as an apostle. And we talked a little bit about how that can be analogous to how many of us in this room feel when it comes to feeling like, who stole our country? And, you know, what happened to the 50s? And fathers knows best. And leave it to Beaver. And, of course, underlying that is the notion that everybody experienced that world the way you did. And, of course, not everybody did. The 50s were not particularly great for lots of groups of human beings. And nor were the 60s. And we could go on and on. But it is analogous, I think, because lots of us feel like we have this right to a certain country, to a certain civilization, to Christianity, to be the top dog and to be respected. And when it's not, this is difficult to us. And, and we notice today all sorts of differentness. My friend Scott McKnight just wrote a book called um, The Difference, I think. And he talks about how it is that God is making of one people out of all these difference, and that there are lots of differences today. And this is what Paul means when he says, I've become just about every sort of servant there is because there are so many difference. I've had to like invent myself to understand the world on their terms to these different sorts of people. And so he says, I entered their world. That is to say, he stayed connected to what felt uncomfortable to him. Right? Paul was a very definite sort of person. And if you've read Paul's letters, you know he had a very definite mind. He had a highly particular worldview and a complete commitment to Jesus as the world's one true Lord. Did you catch that last sentence? One true Lord. He was not at all confused about that. And it's precisely that foundation that then allowed him to enter other people's world, stay connected with them, because he was so sure about who he was. Not cocky, not arrogant, not demanding. A servant, but yet a totally grounded servant. And this is what allowed him to try to experience things from other points of view. Talked a bit last Sunday about the power of listening to people's stories today, to having a genuine curiosity about, well, how did you end up here? How is it that you don't trust religion? Can you tell me your story? How is it that you hate the church? What's going on with you that you, you think all religions are approximately the same? Can you tell me how you came to that conclusion? And to have a genuine, honest curiosity about how people got where they are. 
Well, this morning we're going to look at the other side of this coin where Paul says, if you look at your passage there, but I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ. Now, if you would please look at your passage, because I want you to notice this one key word where Paul says, I didn't take on their way of life. And I just want to talk for a moment about the importance of the term there, that little word there. Now, I do this with fear and trepidation because I, like, failed every English class I was ever in. And if there are English professors in the room, just please forgive me. I'll do my best here. That This term there, it's a, it's a possessive pronoun, but it functions in this sentence as something like an adjective. That is to say, it describes a way of life. When Paul says, I did not take on their way of life. So it'd be something like saying, well, they're in the forest room. And there's a way of life happening over there. Now, can you hear the particularness in that? Can you hear the discreteness? Can you hear the difference? I didn't take on their way of life. So it's both a possessive pronoun, but it functions as an adjective because it describes a different way of life that Paul says, I'm not taking on. This is a life that belongs to them. It's theirs. They possess it, right? Possessive pronoun. This is a kind of life they possess. So I'm not taking on the points of view of everybody else. I'm really clear about who I am in Christ. And I just want to say today, this is so important to me. I know it's counterintuitive to popular media today and to popular culture, but I just want to suggest to you, the human beings have always known that people are different. There's never been a time in human history when people were not able to distinguish between different groups of people. People who were committed to one thing or another, or people who behaved in one way or another. Human beings have always been able to do this and listen to me, and have always judged so according to their present times. So while there may be people in this room and your friends and family who are completely committed to political correctness and the, the upsides of what that is, there are probably people in this room who think political correctness is absolutely nonsense. But that is normal. Human beings have only ever been able to differentiate things according to the lens that they were living in. But trust me, Human beings have always been able to differentiate between Mother Teresa and Mozart or Hitler and Stalin and everything in between. The fact that we resist that temptation today because the temptation towards a kind of oneness, um, a temptation that's cynical about human, human beings' ability to actually differentiate appropriately does not mean that it's not happening even the most radical PC crowd is doing it. If nothing else, they're doing it PC versus non-PC. This is what human beings do. We cannot live without the ability to notice differentness. Now, maybe you're not convinced. So then I'll commend to you uh, the highest authority we have, Jesus. Sheep, goats. Wheat, tares, or weeds. Light and darkness. 
your Lord, was not afraid, did not think it inappropriate to distinguish between persons. Apparently, as our master teacher, he thought it was actually useful to note that some are sheep, and some are goats, and some are wheat, and, and some are weeds, and some are in the light, and some are walking in the darkness. Jesus actually thought that that was explanatory. So it's left on us then to ask Jesus, what did you mean to explain? What were you revealing? What were you explicating? What, was, what were you wanting us to notice here? And I would just simply want to say this, that self-differentiation is core to personhood and that it's core to healthy relationships. And I would want to say it's core to evangelism today. This is what I mean when I say that we do nobody any good, not us, not others, and certainly not the project of God on earth. We do nobody any good when we think that we need to be nice by saying, well, yes, there actually aren't any differences. Those of you who are psychologists in the room, what do we call that? Codependency. How's it useful to anybody? Is it useful in the workplace? No. In a family? No. It's not useful anywhere. In fact, health. Now, as somebody who lives in a family whose wife's battled cancer for 18 years, who I've had cancer twice, I can tell you that healthy differentiated cells are fantastic. You want them. When that pathology report comes back, you do not want it to say these cells were poorly differentiated. Because that means what's supposed to be a liver cell is now a mutant mix of something. And it's not healthy. It's cancerous. Healthy differentiation is built into the cosmos. And whatever might be in our culture today that works against that, and I get it, I have empathy for it, I can honestly put my hand over my heart and say, I have empathy for the present like knee-jerk reaction towards relativism and cynicism. I get it. I get how people get there. But that's not what's built into God's work in the cosmos. What's built into the God's work in the cosmos is the ability to differentiate. So... So Todd, someone might say, should we respect every person? Yes. Absolutely. Should we respect the good aspects that are in most every religion? Yes. All truth is God's truth. If, if, a, if a person of a religion other than Christianity has stumbled onto something that's actually true, well, that's God's thing. And if they stumbled onto it while a part of a, another religion, okay, yes, we can respect that. All religions are the same? No. Can't go there. That's that unhealthy, poorly differentiated codependency. Only it's a social, psychological codependency, not the kind of codependency that exists in an alcoholic home. But it's the same process. It's the same psychological, social process. And it's not healthy. What all religions teach is equally true? No. Now, just think about this for a moment. Wouldn't you expect that one's theory of electricity would work? Y'all got here this morning. 
You know, there are certain theories about gasoline engines that if not followed, you wouldn't be here. Are you feeling me here? There are truths about these things. And we expect people on this level to know things. We expect electricians to know things, not to walk out away from a job going, boy, I got lucky today. Or a car mechanic to say, well, things went well today. I don't really understand this engine, but things went well today. No, we expect people to have knowledge. When we go to a pathologist, we expect them to look with their incredibly powerful microscopes and to be able to differentiate between cancerous and healthy cells. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that as followers of Jesus, we can redeem this kind of differentiation in a healthy way. We can know things that don't have to automatically be divisive in the dogmatic doctrinal ways you might think of. Now, we can't run from, quote, doctrine, but you don't have to go there first. What if you knew this? Jesus is the bread of life. He is my real sustenance. What if you could know that the way electricians know electricity? Jesus is the light of the world. He actually lights my path. What if that were true of you? Could that be knowledge? Or is that just religious rhetoric? What if Jesus was actually lighting your path? Could you then know something the way mechanics know a gasoline engine? Could you then become a person of knowledge who had something to say? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What if you knew that so much that you actually placed your confidence in him and gave yourself to his teaching? Would you then be a person of knowledge? See, this is what Jesus is getting at in our gospel reading this morning when he says, so have no fear. Now listen to this pronoun again. Have no fear of them. Do you hear again the difference in there, the discreteness, the particularity? Have no fear of them. Now listen to Jesus' logic, for. Now Jesus is going to answer why you don't have to have fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed. So look at me. Take all the cynicism from Bill Maher to, I don't know, the, to... Um, the famous atheist, you know, just take it all. Nothing that is now covered in an honest, sincere, gut-level pluralism or that religion is bad, nothing that is presently covered will not be revealed. So have no fear. There's a backstory going on. And there's always been ups and downs of human history. And there's always been ups and downs of American history. And by the way, there were ups and downs of British history before they came here. Are you feeling me here? There has always been ups and downs in human history. But there's a backstory running that says the world is safe, it's secure, it's in God's hands, it's going to come to his intended purpose. So Jesus goes on, rather fear him. So now look at me. 
Don't fear them. Fear him. Differentness again. Fear the one who can both destroy soul and body in hell. Again, I like the way Eugene gets this. Don't be intimidated by all this bully talk. No, don't be a jerk either. Enter their world like a servant. But don't be bullied by it. Don't be bullied by or intimidated by all this bully talk. Stand up for me against world opinion, and I'll stand up for you before my Father who is in heaven. But we know today, and I just want to enumerate this so you can feel it, we know today, though, that there's a great loss of confidence about knowing what's right and good. A recent study I read said that the number of people in America who now call themselves spiritual but not religious, and the sociologists who did this study said that these are people who are really searching for a kind of mystical, personal God that will meet my need as an, as an individual. This now represents 30% of America, one in three people who would say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Then there's globalism, where the average person is now more inclined to think that ours is not the only true religion. Because after all, who wants to be a bigot and put down Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam? Sounds so bigoted, so backwards. Everything in us wants to move towards kind of a, a, a oneness, Third, just think of how staggering this is. Third, 50% of American children now live in non-traditional families. And every study is showing that non-traditional families do not pass on the faith the way traditional families did. It raises the question, why? Here's why. Non-traditional families feel like the Bible doesn't like me, Christians don't like me, and the church doesn't like me because I don't fit the mold. And they're not passing down the faith. Because they feel like, well, whatever the church is, you know, whatever Christianity is, we're not that. We're not a traditional two-parent, never been divorced, you know, don't have blended families, whatever. So we're not that, and that's what everybody else is, and so we can't participate. And then lastly, I think working against this notion that we can know anything good about religion is the internet and how it's, the internet's not bad, but the internet has fueled knowledge, right? And one of the things that it's fueled is knowledge of scandals. And this knowledge of scandals that we can now in, know instantaneously, as soon as somebody's arrested, remember what happened with Bill Cosby this week? Now, that can be known everywhere around the world in an instant. As soon as it hits some wire, then it's all over the world in an instant. And so sociologists are finding that the loss of trust of institutions and religion is higher than it's ever been. 65% of Americans don't trust the medical establishment. 65% do not trust doctors, insurance, and pharmaceutical companies. When it comes to the political, only 8% trust Congress. And as I always jokingly say, I wonder who those eight people are, 8% are, but... Um, <laughs> And when it comes to religion, 42% of Americans do not trust religion. So the next time you go to a movie, you're sitting in a row of 10 people, just look at them. Four of them, 4.2 of them, have no trust in religion. And this is what fuels this today. 
But I want to say that to deny difference is just to be silly, in my opinion. But to say that we might be wrong in our judgments, totally consistent with human history. Of course we are. We're right in some and wrong in others. We just don't know which is which or we'd fix it, right? But of course we are. To, to say that we could be wrong about something, yeah, of course, that's consistent with history. But think of Jesus' context and his reaction to it. He didn't say, oh, Pharisees, it's okay, we're all about the same. Oh, Sadducees, don't worry about it, we're, we're saying about the same thing. Oh, Herodians, don't worry about your political worldview and, you know, your orientation towards Herod and the temple and ultimately Caesar. Don't worry about that. We're all talking about the same stuff. You zealots who want to kill everybody, oh, don't worry about it. All religion's about the same. It's precisely not what Jesus did. Precisely what he did was he stayed connected to them and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The Father is revealing himself to humanity through me. It is highly particularized. And so ultimately, each one of us, we have to get past doubt and fear and cynicism and decide. It's, it's, that's not only core to our own discipleship to Christ, but it's core to evangelism today, to have an honest, humble, thorough commitment to the world's one true creator Lord, Jesus Christ. And this is the kind of decision, the kind of clarity of mind that motivated Paul. When look at your passage again, where he says, I didn't become a servant sort of uh, in theory. I became a servant in my attempt to lead those I meet into a particular life, a God-saved life. Or I thought this week of his saying in Philippians 1.10, where Paul prays that the Philippians would have knowledge. Did you hear that? Can you imagine? Paul prayed that someone would have knowledge. He did. He prayed for the Philippians that you would have knowledge and all discernment. That is to say, you could notice difference. Now again, why? Here's the logic of Paul. So that you may approve what is excellent. That's Paul's imagination for the people he's ministering to. That they would see what is excellent, like love and hope and faith and, and uh, generosity and goodness and kindness and patience, that they would see what was excellent. And so then, be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through religion. You suppose that's what Paul said? Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes by indiscriminate religion. No, Paul said that you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And this is what he means when he said, I kept my bearings. We're almost done here. And it was a little long this morning, but I thought this was important. So what he means when he says, I kept my bearings. Um, to keep your bearings means, if you don't know what that phrase means, it means to, that you have like a, a, a true a knowledge of your position, you know, given your surroundings, right? So you know what it means to lose your bearings. You might say, I got off the freeway at the wrong place and lost my bearings. Or I just got fired at work and I lost my bearings, right? So you, you can feel what it means to lose your bearings. Well, to keep your bearings in this context means something about I remained faithful to God. 
Well, again, if we were to ask, to just kind of wonder today, what does it mean to be faithful to God, true to God, to not lose our bearings when everybody else around us in culture is losing their bearings with reference to God? Well, I just thought, you know, what have, what have the masters said about this? So here's three, Bonhoeffer, Oswald Chambers, and Augustine. Ready? Bonhoeffer, to be faithful to God means exclusive allegiance to God, looking to Jesus as leader. Oswald Chambers, you know, um, my utmost for his highest. Chambers says that to be faithful to God, to keep your bearings in him, is all about commitment, about having only one loyalty or one object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. Chambers says that to, not, to keep our bearings is to possess an inner state such that God is able to work freely in and through us. Isn't that a beautiful picture? To have our bearings in Christ means to possess an inner state such that God is able to work freely in and through us. Or you may know Augustine's famous sentence, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. So in conclusion, I want to point you to our psalm reading this morning where the psalmist is living in a, in a situation, a context in which things feel out of control too. And it felt to the psalmist as if not only were things out of control, but that God was no longer paying attention to it or no longer present to it. And so I paraphrase here, but the the psalmist is saying something like, come on, on your feet, God, stand up for yourself. Don't you hear what they're saying about you? All the vile obscenities? Don't tune out their malicious filth the brawling invective that never lets up. And I end with that because it reminds us that this is not about us. Whatever tension it is that we feel in our families, in our friendships, at work, at school, and popular media, this is ultimately not about us. There's a backstory playing. This is not ultimately about Christians losing stature in American culture. This is about the sovereign work of God. The cry of the psalmist's heart is, stand up for yourself, Lord, for your work, for your sovereign plan. Let it unfold even in this broken time. So as we come to our quiet moment now, and you might, if you want, uh, bow your heads, close your eyes. You might want to look at the image that Beth has given us. And I want to work on your imagination just for a last moment here. What might it mean for you to stand up for Jesus? Imagine in whatever way that the Spirit might work in you what it means to be exclusively committed to Jesus to become the kind of person who can differentiate peacefully. Maybe this morning you want to pray for confidence in God within the ups and downs of human history. Or maybe you want to ask God to give you, like he did Paul, a sincere love for them, for others, for those who are unlike you.